So many of you know the story about William Borden, the heir to the Borden Dairy fortune, graduated from high school in 1904, and his father gives him three things. First of all, an around-the-world trip. Secondly, with a servant. Thirdly, with a new Bible, he gives him. The young Borden is traveling through Africa, parts of Asia and Europe, sees the world's pain, and he feels gripped by God to, to train and prepare to go spend his life in missions. So during his trip, he turns to the back page of the Bible and writes these two words, no reserves. And what he meant by that was uh, nothing holding back from God, no reserves. I am fully yielded and surrendered to God. When he returned, he attended Yale University. He starts a morning prayer group that gave birth to a movement across the campus. By the end of his freshman year, there were 150 freshmen meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time he was a senior, there were 1,000 Yale students meeting in those kind of groups across Yale's campus. He also founded the Yale Hope Mission, a ministry with alcoholics, and he encouraged many of his classmates to consider doing missionary service. One friend said of him as a college student, there was real iron in him. I felt he was the stuff that martyrs were made of. Well, after college, Borden was given several high-paying job offers, including from his own family's company, and he turned them all down, which upset his family because he felt called to go to, to seminary and then to missions. So at that point, after the four years at Yale University, he turns again to the back of his Bible and writes two more words, the words, no retreats. No retreats. At that point, he continues seminary, graduating three years later. And when he does, he feels called to work with Muslims in China. And to learn Arabic, he stops by for weeks in Egypt to begin learning the language and to prepare, final preparation. So he is in Egypt. And while there, he is stricken with cerebral meningitis. And 30 days later, he dies at age 25. Later, his father was leafing through his Bible that he had with him in Egypt, and he found a third phrase in the back of the Bible, and that was the phrase, no regrets. And so the three phrases that he had made, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. I am all in for the Savior. Now, William Barton is a picture of a, of a man who has unwavering commitment and unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ. And that kind of commitment and surrender is so epitomized by Stephen, the character that we come to in the book of Acts, Acts 6. Stephen was introduced back in Acts 6-5, and our last passage is one of seven men selected to oversee the daily distribution of meals to widows. In our passage, Stephen will become the central figure of the passage, and that will continue throughout Acts 7, where he will be stoned to death and, becoming, and become the first Christian martyr. Stephen only appears in these two chapters in the Bible, Acts 6 and 7, but he is one of the most remarkable men of God in the New Testament. I put him right there with Paul as two of the uh, most courageous, Christ-like men of faith in the New Testament. Would you please stand with me as I read the passage? 
I'm in Acts 6, verse 8, the rest of that chapter. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's Word. Please be seated. So verse 8 gives us a summary of Stephen's ministry when it says that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, to say that he was full of grace is to say that he was full of love, forgiveness, kindness. To say that he was full of power is to say that he had the, the power of the Holy Spirit upon him in a strong way, and God was using him to do miracles among the people. Probably included healings, casting out demons. Now, so far in the book of Acts, we have had the phrase, wonders and signs, at two key places in the book. And both times, it says that the signs and the wonders, the wonders and the signs were done by the apostles. For example, Acts 2.43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, through the 12 apostles. And then later in Acts 5.12, at another key juncture after Ananias and Sapphira, we read, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And so until this point in the book of Acts, we've had no record of anyone other than the 12 apostles doing miracles. Now I imagine that there probably were. doesn't say there weren't. We just have no record that they were until now with Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. And here we see that God was doing great wonders and signs. So God was using Stephen in a powerful way. Stephen is having an enormous impact on Jerusalem. And so the Jew Jewish religious leaders are desperate to stamp out this growing band of, of Jesus' disciples. And so they do something about it. And in verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed against Stephen. Now, the freedmen, the synagogue of the freedmen, would simply be former slaves. These were Jewish people spread out through the Roman Empire, and slavery was much more common in the Roman Empire. It was more economic, commercial. And... Um, they had been slaves, and now they were set free, which was not that uncommon in the Roman Empire. Now they've got a synagogue, and they were adamant about Stephen and his message. Now, when it says that also those of 
the, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, both of those are in North Africa, Cyrene in modern-day Libya, Alexandria, of course, still a city in modern-day Egypt. And then there were those from Cilicia and Asia, Cilicia being a province in what's now modern-day Turkey, and then Asia or Asia Minor, not the whole continent, but in the New Testament, just a province or Roman province in what's modern-day Turkey. So all of them together, banding together to oppose Stephen, but they had a big problem, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So the Holy Spirit is upon Stephen, empowering him, anointing him, and his opponents were overwhelmed by the wisdom and the power that Stephen had with them. And so, uh, you know, what, what's going on here is not necessarily that Stephen had more IQ. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But he had the Spirit of God. Do you know that 1 Corinthians 2.14 says... The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Sometimes it frustrates us. It frustrates me that, that you know, seemingly good people reject the things of God. Very bright people reject the things of God. Don't let that surprise you because the Bible says that apart from the Spirit, nobody understands the things of the Spirit of God. And if you do, it is by grace. God has opened our eyes. And they were out of their league. They just, you know, couldn't stick with him here. So they stir up opposition in the Sanhedrin. Now, that's the Supreme Court, 70 rabbis, who have the clout in the land to have him executed. They had Jesus executed. It's a big deal. They got power, and they bring him. They seized him and bring him in for trial. Verse 13, the false witnesses say, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. A little bit of hyperbole, I bet. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, when they're referring to this place, they mean the temple. They mean the temple mount up here in the temple. I mean, what was more sacred as a place for the Jews than the temple? Nothing. That's the presence of God on earth. You know, that's the, the holy of holies, ark of the covenant, and that's where God focuses His presence on earth. And then you got the Mosaic Law, God's Word. So if they're claiming, and they misunderstand Him, that He is speaking against the temple and the law, you can imagine how irate they would be. And so in verse 15, the passage simply concludes, ironically, by saying, and gazing at Him, the Sanhedrin, and gazing at Him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And that had to be frustrating to them also. I mean, they are, you know, have the power of life and death over him. And, and he's up there with such a, a sense of peace about it. You remember Jesus on the cross, he was undeterred, unafraid, unashamed, uh, uh, just unintimidated. And, and that's, that's Stephen. He's, he's got a face full of peace. And, and joy and love, we're going to find out. And uh, it's because of the Spirit of God upon him. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Okay, what happens next? Well, next week we're going to see in more detail, but let me just give you a brief thumbnail sketch to, to kind of understand the flow of the passage here. Stephen will be asked to defend himself. And then in Acts 7, beginning at verse 1, actually verse 2, Right on through verse 53, he's going to kind of give an overview of the whole Old Testament. Just, you know, kind of off the cuff. He's quoting the Bible, 
you know, he, I know he doesn't have a bunch of scrolls with him, so he's quoting it from memory. He knows the Word of God. But at the end of that section, I want to I pick it up because he's going to speak very directly to them. And he will say in verse 51, Acts 7, 51, he will say, you stiff-necked people. Now, after this whole overview about what happened with Abraham and David and Moses, he now turns to them, you stiff-necked people. These are the religious leaders of the country who had Jesus crucified, who could have him killed. You stiff-necked people. You're uncircumcised. I mean, that's just like, you know, so offensive to these people. You're uncircumcised in heart and in ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Not too intimidated, is he? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand that the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered from angels and did not keep it. I mean, he is so strong with them. They don't like it. Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, picture stoning at the, in the ancient world. Generally, there would be a, a small cliff at least, let's say maybe 10 feet, 12 feet high, they would throw the person down, and they would stone them. Don't think little pebbles and rocks that we like to skip across, you know, water. Not that kind, but stones. Big stones would be hefted over the cliff and be falling on his head and his body and crushing him. That was their method of execution. Thought it was coming. It might come later. All right. Where are we? that funny up there? All righty. There was a man in the second century, a Christian leader by the name of Justin. He's called Justin Martyr. And one of my all-time favorite quotes, and I, I must have 10,000 quotes that I've saved for 50 years. And um, one of my all-time quotes is this one. This is what he said. He says, no one trusted in Socrates so as to die for his doctrine." But in Christ, not only philosophers and scholars believed, but also artisans and people entirely uneducated, despising glory and fear and death. Now, what faith? If they despise glory and fear and death. That's Stephen, isn't it? I mean... He's despising that stuff. They cannot intimidate him. 
He doesn't fear those who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body and the soul. And he is unintimidated by these guys completely. In fact, when he's near death, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, uh, a, a statement of faith and trust in God. Echoing what Jesus said on the cross when he said to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But isn't it, isn't it, isn't it interesting that whereas Jesus prays to the Father, Stephen prays to Jesus because he's God. Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then a bit later, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, you know, I have trouble forgiving somebody who just kind of annoys me. But they're stoning him to death. His prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Echoing what Jesus said on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them where they know what, not what they do. He's so Christ-like. And, uh, I mean, can you imagine in that situation, um, forgive them, forgive them. You know, it said of Jesus in John 1.14 that he was full of grace and truth. And that's true of Stephen, isn't it? The truth we just saw, the grace also. He is full of grace and truth. In fact, he is one of the most Christ-like characters I know in the Bible. Let me ask you this. What was behind this kind of life, this kind of faith, this kind of character, this kind of courage? What's behind it? What's the secret of it? Well, God's going to make it pretty clear in this passage because there are, are not no, no less than five descriptors of Stephen in this Stephen narrative in Acts 6 and 7. Let me go through them with you. See if you see a pattern here. Acts 6, 3, these men that Stephen was going to be part of had to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And then in Acts 6, 5, it is said specifically of Stephen that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then in 6.8, it says, full of grace and power. Then in 6.10, he's got wisdom and the Spirit. And then at the end of chapter 7 that I just read, he is full of the Holy Spirit. What do you see? The Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Four times in the five phrases. Uh, what happened to that fifth phrase? If you'd go back to it, if you don't mind, that the one that does not have... The Spirit in it, that'd be 6 8. Uh, what's this say? Full of grace and power. The whole book of Acts, the source of power is the Holy Spirit. In fact, the theme verse of the book is this Acts 1 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's right. So, either explicitly or one time implicitly, time after time, five times, God is telling us this man, well, what, what, what explains this? The Spirit of God. It's not Stephen, it's the Spirit. The Spirit. The Spirit. He is full of the Spirit. Yeah, it's all through the book of Acts, not just with Stephen, but nowhere is it more emphatic than with Stephen. But it's all through. I mean, several times in chapter 1 and then chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out. God is saying to you and to me, here in 2020, here in Spring Woodlands, this is what he's saying to us. He is saying, this is how the church lived, and this is how you must live. 
It is in the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, from the power of the Spirit. It is the Spirit. We live in the age of the Spirit. We live our lives in the power of the Spirit, in dependence upon the Spirit. Now, there are some other things in those phrases besides the Spirit. He says he's full of wisdom. But where does wisdom come from if not from the Spirit of God? I mean, we have wisdom. And, of course, we're not talking about IQ here. He may have fine IQ, but we don't know. But that's not the point. You know, all of us have met, certainly in college professors, no offense, Corky Courtright and Rice, but other college professors, not you. Um, <laughs> here are men and women who may be brilliant, but have no clue about what life is all about. Because they, they, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And we've all found people who are brilliant, but without wisdom. Stephen was full of wisdom because he's full of the Spirit. And then it says he's full of faith. I mean, can't please God without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. It's, it's absolutely Does Stephen have faith? I mean, he's about to be killed, and he is unafraid because he's trusting his God. He's trusting his God. And he's full of grace. Does he have grace? Does he have full of grace? Man, he's getting stoned to death, and Lord, forgive him. He is full of grace. The fruit of the Spirit is coming out of this man in all kind of ways. So, in addition to being full of the Spirit, or let's say it this way, because he is full of the Spirit, he is also full of wisdom, faith, and grace. Because of the Spirit. No wonder Stephen, in that brief life recorded here, had such a remarkable life, and why we still name our boys Stephen, like some of you, no doubt. Main point of our passage today, simple and clear. It's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, in Jesus' life, certainly I underscore that he lived in the power of the Spirit. In Luke's first volume, it's particularly emphatic. But in the night Jesus, before he was crucified, he really emphasizes the Holy Spirit time after time. And he says this astounding thing. He says, looks his disciples in the eyes, and they're sad because he's going away. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away, because when I do, I'll send my spirit. Now, think about that. That just, that still seems just a little bit difficult. I mean, to kind of choke down. You mean, Jesus, it would not be a little bit better for us if you were here right here in the flesh? He says, no. It is better that I go and I send out my spirit. But think about it with me. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple, it was so holy because that was God's presence on the planet. I mean, it's the holy of holies. Nobody goes in there except once a year, only the high priest. And they better put a rope around him because if he dies, nobody else is going in. Got to pull him out. He was holy, holy. You better tremble. This was the temple of God. And Jesus says, it is to, my, it's to your advantage because when I go away, I'm going to send my spirit. And that happens in Acts 2. And do you know what the temple is today? You and me. Whoa. Wait, wait, wait. Wait a minute. You're talking about the presence of God, the Holy One who created the galaxies, that the new temple is me? Is you? Whoa. That is so big. It's so big. The privilege of it. The, I mean, 
we're undone and overwhelmed. We're, we're, we're humbled that God's temple is me and you. It is us as a church, a local church. The church matters so much to him. It is us as individual believers. We are the dwelling place of God. Let me ask you this question. If God, the Spirit, dwells in you, do you think it is okay for us to ignore him most days? <laughs> do you think it's okay to act as if he is not there at all? Do you think it's okay if we continue kind of in charge of our own lives, living our lives for ourselves rather than for God within us? Do you think it is okay for us to depend upon our power and resources rather than the power of God within us? Is that okay? No, it's not. Four-year-olds coming strong here. Do you think it is okay that rather than surrender to the control of God within us, that we still are in charge of our own lives? The answers are obvious. You know, for those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, for those of us, the question is never, do, you know, do, do I have the Holy Spirit? Because the Bible teaches that at the moment you trust Christ, one of the 30-something things God does for you, at that moment, He adopts you, He gives you eternal life, He forgives you, etc. He comes inside you in the Spirit. you got the Spirit on the side. So the question is never, do I have the Spirit? But the question is always, does the Spirit have me? Is He in control? Is He running the show? Or am I still living for myself and the American dream? Or am I living for God's dream, God's kingdom, God's will? Whatever that means for me, like William Barton. No reserves. No regrets. No whatever else he said. None of that. The Bible says, it uses language like this in Galatians 5 and Romans 8, the other two key passages of the Holy Spirit. It uses this kind of language. You are to walk by the Spirit. You are to live by the Spirit. You are to be filled with the Spirit. You are to keep in step with the Spirit. You are to be led by the Spirit. Now, I think I can sum up all that language by saying what that really means is surrender to the Spirit and, and really dependence upon the Spirit rather than upon yourself. It, it, it's surrender. I mean, how can God fill you with the Spirit if you're full of self. We need to empty ourselves and surrender. No other, no areas of uh, rebellion where, God, you can have all this except this one. No, empty, surrender, full surrender to the Lord, full dependence upon the Lord. This past week in my daily time with the Lord, I've been reading through the Old Testament and um, I, I get to the book of Zechariah, and one, and, uh, one day I, I get to Zechariah 4. Now, the previous day I'd read Zechariah 1 through 3. My practice is that, um, and my daily Bible reading, however far I get, that's what I get. Well, the next day, it just about, I was locked in on one verse, couldn't hardly get by it. I think I did the whole chapter, but really one verse. And that was Zechariah 4, verse 6. You'll recognize it probably. We, we, we read this. This is the word of the Lord that is irrevocable, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? It's in the Old Testament. 
which does not emphasize the Spirit nearly as much as the New Testament, especially from Acts 2 on when the Spirit is poured out. But, you know, notice about it, the, the part to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, that's not even the complete sentence. It's like God is kind of shocking us and uh, abruptly saying, hey, it's not by might or power. It's by my Spirit. It's by my Spirit. Zerubbabel, everything in your life. Christian today, everything in your life. It's by the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. Can we say that together? Just that phrase. Say it with me. Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. Would it be that we would live moment by moment in the consciousness of that? I mean, that would be a good verse just kind of blaze across your head. I mean, figuratively. No, no tattoo. Um, the role of the Spirit is so emphatic throughout the book of Acts, especially in the Stephen, Stephen narrative. God is telling you and me through the life of Stephen, live in the power of my Spirit. That means surrender. That means deep surrender, full surrender, complete surrender. I was reading a little phrase about John Newton who you know, wrote Amazing Grace, the most widespread song ever written. And uh, he was a slave trader, and when he was grappling with God, he, 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 talked to, he came to a point of surrender, and he said it was absolute and unlimited. I like that. My surrender to the Lord is absolute and unlimited. So this is full surrender, whatever the Spirit is saying to you. And then secondly, it is dependence, moment-by-moment moment dependence. And so let me close with these two questions, simple questions. You've got the same Spirit that Stephen has. Do you live in full surrender like Stephen did? You've got the same spirit that Stephen has. Do you live in the same moment-by-moment -moment dependence that Stephen did? And if not, why not? Because this is the spiritual life. Please stand. Friend, first of all, if, you're not, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, do so now because that's how you enter this life, and you have forgiveness from your sin, and you receive the Spirit. Breathe a prayer, Jesus, save me. And dozens of things will, God will do to you right then, including the Spirit. Now, Lord, for most of us, we've done that, and, and it is so easy, Lord God, to lose sight and neglect the centrality of the Spirit in our daily lives, Lord, and that we, we tend to depend upon ourselves, or I tend to depend upon myself. Lord, rescue us from that. May we be aflame with the Spirit, just like we see in the early church. Lord, this is our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.